Our text of emphasis this morning is found in 1 John uh, chapter 3 and verses 4 and 5. It says there this, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. This is the word of the Lord. So we're starting a new mini-series for the fall, dealing with the essentials, those things that make Christianity a Christian. And as we start this journey, I'm reminded of the famous... NCAA basketball coach John Wooten, who coached UCLA to 11 national championships. It's a, a record, and he was a uh, really thoughtful uh, guy, and he had a practice at the beginning of each season with his uh, new recruits, the new students coming in, but also those students who were coming back for their second uh, or third year. Uh, he started the whole season off by talking to them about how to put on their socks and how to tie up their shoes. And he says this, this is uh, Wooden. He says, I think it's the little things that really count. The first thing I would show our players at our first meeting was how to take a little extra time putting on their shoes and their socks properly. The most important part of your, your equipment is your shoes and your socks. You play on a hard floor, so you must have shoes that fit right, and you must not permit your socks to have wrinkles around the little toe where you generally get blisters or around the heels. took just a few moments, but I did show my players how I wanted them to do it. Hold up the sock, work it around the toe area and the heel so there are no wrinkles, smooth it out good, then hold onto the sock while you put the shoe on. And the shoe must be spread apart, not just pulled out on the laces, and then you tighten them up snugly through the eyelets. And then you tie it and you double tie it so it won't come undone. Uh, so there we have great basketball coach, again, one of the greatest coaches of all time. And his practice was that you have to go back to the essentials. You have to go back to the essentials, especially when you're starting off on a new year. And so we're starting off on this journey together. Now, I'm not claiming to be uh, John Wooden by any means, uh, but we are going to take some time and look at the essentials, those, those things that make Christianity, a Christian. As we begin this journey, I invite you to pray with me. Father God, as we consider the words of 1 John and as we think about this journey together and the essentials of what it means to be a Christian, we pray for a better understanding of who you are and who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Question for you. Do you sin? Do you sin? All right. Got some confession already. That's good. Uh, do you sin? That's a, that's a pretty big question. Uh, most people who I've met are willing to concede that they aren't perfect, but that doesn't necessarily equate to a confession of uh, sin. So as we start this journey thinking about the essentials, one of the essentials is an understanding of sin. So we're going to talk about uh, sin today. Now, uh, the Bible is pretty clear about uh, whether uh, people sin or not. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned. Everyone has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Um, and so, again, the Bible is very, very clear. Everyone is mired in uh, sin. This is a sinful world, and each of us are, are sinful human beings. Now, sin is such a loaded uh, concept, and uh, we need to take a little bit of time to deconstruct what sin is about, especially since uh, Romans says that we're all in the mess of it. So what really is sin? So according to 1 John, the text of emphasis that we just read, uh, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. That's what uh, John says. Now, as we think about that and try to deconstruct a sin a little bit, we recognize that there is a relationship between sin and uh, the law, a relationship between sin and the law, which leads us to ask the question, what is meant by the law? Now, uh, Bible students would usually when thinking about the law, refer to the first five books of what we know as the Old Testament, the the Torah, the books of Moses. And so, in essence, with that in mind, John is saying, hey, if you you live without Torah, if you live with that Torah, you live with a sin. And that sin is related to breaking of the law. But the idea of Torah is is pretty broad. And so, maybe... Uh, it's Jesus' words that help us to, a little better to understand the concept of what the law is. And we find in Mark chapter 12, Jesus giving a summary of what the law is all about. It's actually also in Matthew chapter 22, if you guys want to cross-reference. So Mark chapter 12 and verse 28 say this, and uh, this is the description of an interaction that Jesus has with another individual. Mark 12 verse 28. One of the teachers of the law, so an expert in Torah, came to Jesus because he heard him debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked of him, of all of the the commandments, those kind of essential elements of the law, of all of the commandments, which is most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second commandment is this. Love your neighbors as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. And so what we see here Jesus doing in Mark chapter 12 is taking uh, the concept of law and boiling it down to its most essential. And he says that the most essential is the concept of loving God, having a, a healthy, loving relationship with God, and having a, a healthy, loving relationship with our brothers and sisters in humanity. That that is the essence of the law. It's, the law is rooted in love, in our relationship between God and our relationship with each other. This helps us to uh, clarify that the law is not just a bunch of arbitrary rules, which is often the critique of uh, the law in the Bible. That's just a bunch of arbitrary rules that uh, either God made up or people made up to, to, uh, to express power over others. But uh, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said the law is about love. It's about a relationship with God and a relationship with our brothers and sisters in humanity. And so they're not just arbitrary. They're there for a reason. They help us to live in healthy relationship with God and with each other. Law is for relationship. Law is for relationship. Uh, this is emphasized later in the book of 1 John, where our text of emphasis came today, uh, from today, 
in John chapter 4, 8, where John again says, God is love. Like in the most essential element, when we think about God, God is love. I.e., God is, is rooted in relationship. He lived in relationship before humanity existed. Father, Son, Spirit, that, that, that God family, if you will. And that this idea of relationship was perpetuated as he created his uh, children. And so God is love. Love is about relationship. The, the law is rooted in love. The law is for relationship, relationship with, our, with God, and relationship with our brothers and sisters in humanity. And so this is an important element as we start this process of thinking about what makes uh, Christianity a Christian. The law is about facilitating relationship. Uh, with that said, that uh, does lead to uh, some other questions, uh, especially as we think about the state of the world today. You know, if we look at the world, and you don't have to go very far to recognize that uh, there seems to be a love problem in the, in the world, right? You, know, you open your time, I got my times this morning, you open the times or whatever paper you read or news source you get, you don't have to go very far to find out a lot of turmoil in the world. People who are fighting with each other, war, all kinds of, of craziness going on. And most of this is rooted in broken relationships, whether it's broken relationships between people, one person hurting another, or it's broken relationships between people, groups, or country, countries. There is a lot of brokenness when it comes to a relationship. And so things are, are, are challenging. Clearly, there's a love problem in the world, but it's not just the world. If I think about my own experience, and I would imagine if you think about your own experience, uh, there's, there's some brokenness there as well. There's a love problem in our, own, in our own hearts. And so this issue of love and law and relationship is relevant to us today because we live in a broken world and we are broken uh, people. Uh, of course, this goes back to the very... Uh, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, the, the origin story of how things got to be the way they are, we, we read in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5 that uh, the first couple, Adam and Eve, they come and they are in, di- Eve is in dialogue with this uh, serpent who we later find out to be the deceiver, the evil one, uh, Satan, and they are having this dialogue. Satan reproaches her and says, God knows that when you eat from this fruit of the on the tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then they dialogue back and forth. And of course, both Adam and Eve eat this fruit and embrace this idea of, 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 of living for oneself, living in uh, selfishness, if you will, which is really at the core of broken relationship, right? I mean, love for self above love for God and love for a brother and sister in humanity. If we really get down to it, uh, selfishness, being self-consumed, uh, which goes back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5. Hey, you can be like God and love yourself and, and be the one in charge and uh, all is going to be great with that. And that first deception got us started on this track of just self-love and being consumed with ourselves and what we, what we want. And so this isn't a new concept. Again, this is an essential element of what it means to be a Christian to understand that, look, we are broken, that we have a problem, that problem is rooted in our own selfishness. And so, um, as, good, as good followers of Jesus, as good people of the church, 
but not just us, as people recognize their brokenness and recognize their own selfishness, we usually come up with some strategies to overcome this selfishness. And again, you don't have to be uh, a person of the church to come up with a strategy recognizing your own selfishness. And so uh, there are a couple of strategies that I would like to uh, present you today, actually uh, three. So, so we think about you know ways in which we try to overcome the selfishness problem, the self-love problem that often gets in the, w- in the way of our ability to, uh, to exist in a healthy relationship with God and with each other and therefore be lawless. You guys with me? Everybody's okay? Is it a little warm in here or is it me? Can we get the air going? Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, how do we deal with the... A selfishness problem. As I mentioned, I have three uh, ways. There are more, but uh, these are three. So the first way that we often try to correct this selfishness problem is that we try to do unselfish things. We try to do unselfish things. Have you ever just been in your, your experience where you're feeling a little, little self-consumed? And you think, man, I, you know what? I need to work on my selfishness, and so I need to go serve someone else. Have you ever done that? Man, let me tell you, at Avon Hope, we, we try to give you options if that's the case. We send out an email every week and we say, hey, here's some great ways where you can get connected and help other people because we like to help other people at Avon Hope. We'd like to give you the opportunity to do that. So we've got Nye. He's sitting right there. Nye takes us down to Jan Hus. And at Jan Hus, we, we serve food for people who are in need. Right, Nye? And how often does that happen? Every six weeks or so? Okay, every four weeks. Whoops. There you go. Bad, bad advertisement for Nye. Um, so every four weeks you can go. You can join Jan, uh, at Jan Hus, the church, another uh, fellow church just down the road, and you can help serve people. Or We have a, a bunch of other ways that you can do that. And so that's, that's one great way to address the problem of selfishness, that we go and we try to do unselfish things. The problem is this. Doing unselfish things does not make you unselfish, right? <laughs> I mean, I've, gone, I've been down to Jan Hus, and it would be great if just magically serving other people, you just became just this, you know, transcendent, unselfish being. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Doing unselfish things on their own, it's good. Don't get me wrong. Go serve other people, help people. There's a lot of things that we can do in this city, in this world, to help other people. But if you think that doing unselfish things on, your own, on their own are going to suddenly make and transform you into a, an unselfish person, it, it doesn't work that way. That's like, you know, I purchased a basketball and now I'm a basketball player for John Wooden. It doesn't work that uh, way. So, other things that we try to do to address our selfishness a problem. We become more religious. We become more religious. I mean, that's got to be in the, the, the very top ways in which we try to address our own uh, inadequacies, our own selfishness. We say, you know what? I need to become, my pro- I've got a problem. I need to become more religious. And so we start uh, going to you know, church more or you know, synagogue more or wherever, wherever one might go, thinking that if I just, you know, get more religious. And so we start studying. We start reading books. This is an Adventist congregation, the Adventist tradition. We love reading some books. We love giving other people books to read. 
You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever given somebody else a book thinking, boy, that's going to do it for them? That we love that. Adventists love giving people books. So we read books. You know, you go to, go to your religious services. Uh, you, start, you start looking at things like law. You know, oh, Torah. If I just read the Torah and I start observing things in the law, that this is going to make me a less selfish a person. But you know what? Does that work? I mean, does just, does just being here today somehow magically transform you into the kind of person that you, you want to be and that you're suddenly unselfish and you're suddenly the most loving, caring person for God and for each other? No. You know how I know that? I'm, I'm still messed up, you know? And, and, and listen, I, also know, I know a lot of people... I don't want to be judgy here, but I'm going to be a little judgy. I know some people who are like the most churchy people that you've ever seen in your life, and they're also the meanest people on the planet. You know what I'm talking about? Becoming more religious does not fix the love problem on its own. It doesn't make you less selfish. I'm not saying don't become religious. Don't get involved in your local church or your, 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 your religious group. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying if you think that that's going to solve the problem on your own, it doesn't work on its own. Finally, we, in trying to address this selfishness problem, we uh, recognize that the selfishness is rooted in relationship, and so we focus on relationships, on, on building relationships, and so, and so we might uh, find a, a significant other and we invest a lot of time in them or we or we may even have a, a family or be more intentional about reaching out to our family a good thing without question very positive very good but you can be very invested in a relationship with someone else and still be selfish and still have a love problem you know what i'm talking about so you can you can i mean listen listen if 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 I mean, my family is, you know, just, you know, there's five of us now. I mean, if, if it was just about having more relationships with more people, you know, I should be transcendent in my unselfishness and love. But it doesn't work that way. You can have close relationships with people and still not be fixed in your, in your brokenness and your, and your love. Still have selfishness at the core of who you are. And so we try to fix the selfishness problem uh, by doing things that seem unselfish, we try to become more religious. We might even focus on our relationships with others. All really positive things. But alone, they don't fix the problem of our brokenness. They don't fix our, our love problem. They don't fix our relationship to a law, which is really our relationship with God and with our brothers and sisters in humanity. Those things don't do it alone. And so that leaves us with the last question, what hope do we have? I mean, those were, those were the top three. If those aren't going to do it on their own, what hope do we have? The Bible tells us that there was one who lived a life of selflessness, not selfishness. In Philippians chapter 2 in verse 6, these words are written about him. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't act selfishly. He didn't hold on to what he had just so he could uh, be who, who he, he was meant to be. 
Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a human. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We remember the words of this Jesus who in Luke chapter 22 on the night before he was to, uh, to die is wrestling with who he is, wrestling with his relationship with God and wrestling with his relationship with his brothers and sisters in humanity who were trapped under the, the burden of sin. And he's, he's talking with God and he says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. There is one who acted unselfishly. We try to fix our selfishness by doing unselfish things and becoming more religious and focusing on our relationships with others, but that always ends up short. We always still remain broken, and yet there's one who was not broken and who lived unselfishly. In John chapter 13, we read about this, this, this man again, the story where, on the, again, on the night before he's to die, die, he gets together with his disciples for a holiday meal, a meal that we celebrated together last week as we joined in the Lord's Supper and the communion service together. But they served, broke the bread and they drank the, the juice together, but they did something else. Jesus got down on his feet and he, on his knees, and he washed the feet of his disciples, which was completely shocking uh, to them. Again, displaying himself as a servant, one who came to serve, one who lived without uh, selfishness. And so we see in Jesus one who did what we could not do. We recognize our own selfishness. We let, recognize our own brokenness, our own lack of, of love, and we try to fix that in ways that just don't end out working. But we see one who has come and did what we could not do. And that leads us with the last question today. How? How does this, this man, and how does his work transform our lives? How do, how do we take advantage of what he, he has done? We try, and we haven't been able to do it, but how do we take advantage of what uh, he has done? First John, our text of emphasis, you remember, says that he appeared that he might take away the sin. He appeared that he might take away the sin. How does that happen? How does he do in us what we cannot do for ourselves? How does he take away the sin that we have not been able to take away? How does he take away the brokenness? How does he heal us of our own selfishness and give us new eyes for those who are hurting and in need in this world? How does he do that? The key to that question is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. This is the Apostle Paul talking, one of the great communicators about the good news of what Jesus has done. And he says this, Jesus' love compels us. Jesus' love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and, and therefore all died. He died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves. You no longer live for selfishness. 
Jesus died for that. He, did, he died so that he could create, correct that problem in each of our characters. We're inherently selfish. We're inherently designed at this point because of our brokenness to focus on ourselves and take care of ourselves first. But he died so that he could fix that. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. The worldly point of view is to look at someone and see how you can get out of them what you need for yourself. To objectify people and objectify circumstances and situations. Paul tells us when Jesus came, he came to give us new eyes. So that we don't look at people to see how we can use them for our own gain. Paul says, we once regarded Christ in this way, but we do so no longer. We once, he knew, they, people looked and they saw Jesus and they saw them what, what he could do and they thought, we're going to use him for our own good. He's going to do for us, he's going to do for our people what we can't do for ourselves. He's going to make us into a great nation again. Sometimes we still look at Jesus that way. We look at Jesus for, for what he's going to do for our current circumstances and look at him selfishly, even Jesus. But Paul says when Jesus really gets a hold of you and you, you, you are compelled by what he's done on your behalf, God changes our whole motivation and everything. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do we take advantage of the work that, that Jesus has done, recognizing that our own work to get our act together has not been successful? So how do we take advantage of what Jesus has done? Paul says, hey, Christ's love compels you. Consider what Jesus has done. Consider what Jesus has done. Allow yourself to be open. And if you consider what Jesus has done and allow your heart to be open, God starts coming in and making changes inside of you. And it's a little bit mysterious. We don't know all the science behind how he does it, but he gets inside of us and he starts making character changes and he starts adjusting things and he starts changing our relationship with people and he starts changing our eyes. And, and, and Paul says the only way to describe it is that you become like a new creation. You're like something new. Some of you here know what I'm talking about. You've gone through this experience where God has taken you from one place and he's brought you to another place and he's still working and transforming and changing because, by the way, this process never ends. You never arrive. You're not like, I am here. Here I am, unselfish me. It's a process that keeps happening each and every day and he works inside of us and transforms us and he changes us. And, and, and the only way it happens is as we, we are, are compelled by what he's done on our behalf. And it's so easy for us to get focused on what we've done or what we're supposed to be doing. And we get all tied up in how we're supposed to be doing this and we're supposed to be doing that and we're not doing this and we're not doing that. But that never satisfies our ultimate need for transformation. The only thing that's, that satisfies the need for ultimate transformation is God working in us. And so we're compelled. We comprehend what God has done through the work of Jesus, and open our hearts. Just say, hey, I mean, that's why Jesus kept saying, believe. Somebody just gets like, hey, I don't get it. I don't know exactly how this is going to happen, but I believe. And 
God is able to start making the changes and to make you into a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. We might be transformed and changed and made to be the unselfish people God has called us to be. And therefore, we become lovers of the law, lovers of doing those things which is going to enhance our relationship with God and enhance our relationship with our brothers and sisters in humanity. As we embrace the work of Jesus on our behalf, God does for us what we can't do for ourselves and makes us into new creations. May he do that in our lives today. Amen.